I was, I was so hungry to keep programming in APL that when I went to the engineering building and discovered it to be locked, I, you know, I, I saw that I could just stick a twig in the door and, and essentially unlock it, break my way in. Welcome to ADSB, the podcast, episode 49, recorded on October 3rd, 2021. My name is Connor, and today with my co-host, Bryce, we continue part two of our interview with Dave Abrahams, which covers topics including basic, APL, C++, and so much more. If you haven't seen part one, check out episode 48, which was part one of this two-part interview. Can I ask you a question? I just I just realized I don't know what ADSB stands for, and so... I, I don't know <laughs> what audience we're talking to and like what this podcast is about. ADSP stands for Algorithms Plus Data Structures Equals Programs, stolen from the Nicholas Wirth uh, book. Beautiful. Um, I'm not actually sure if we've ever described why we chose that uh, <laughs> one. Do you mean the real reason or the uh, or the other reason? There's two reasons. I don't even know. What are the two reasons that well, you know? The pragmatic reason is that when you have algorithms and data structures in your podcast uh, title, yeah. it means that you know you're pretty. It's pretty good SEO, search, right. search engine optimization. But there's other reasons. Oh right, is it the unofficial one that one of our Twitter followers pointed out that someone said it's a unofficially <laughs> a discussion with Sean Parent? Yes, that's um, the other <laughs> acronym. <laughs> because we've had him on. I think we've yep. only talked to him three times, but we always, we always, you know, squeeze as much content out. And so we turn those three uh, recordings into like nine episodes. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the, the first four episodes of the show were uh, us talking about our favorite algorithms and data structures. And it's, it's mostly an open-ended, uh, sometimes we bring guests on to hear about their stories and experience. And sometimes we're just randomly, you know, right before you joined, I had been wanting to explain my love that is developing for uh, combinatory logic and combinators, which are these little, mm-hmm. you know, composition patterns that a few of them exist in a- or in Haskell and a lot of them exist in APL, which is like my favorite language at the moment. Um, that was one of my first uh, languages actually. All right. So here I'm going to turn this interview on its head because Bryce's introduction quickly dived into, uh, Oh, do you know about this boost story? And I was like, Bryce, I said, we wanted to go back to the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) And then we, we just, we, we skipped to like, well, I we can go back to wherever you want to go back, but I'm, so I'm, um, I'm super curious. Yeah. Like how did you get to the, you know, 1998 point where boost pro and boost con and all that stuff started. And then you, I don't know if it's how many chapters has it been since then, but there's the C++ chapter at sort of Boost mm-hmm. Pro. And I'm not even sure if that was all of your time was spent at Boost Pro there, or there was some before and after. Then you had your Swift chapter at Apple. Then that chapter sort of continue or evolved into Swift for TensorFlow at Google. And now you're at Adobe. So there's all of that stuff, but I, I have no idea what happens to the point where you were you starting that series of chapters um, if you had been doing C++. So the fact that you're mentioning APL, and that's the thing is I have started to discover that these people that are known for certain things like Stepanov, known for STL, known for C++, spent a decade in Scheme preaching mm-hmm. uh, the the beauty of, of Lisps and has one of his talks talks about how, you know, APL with its arrays and Lisps with its, you know, homo iconic, you know, parentheses and small talk with its object model. Like, and he, he stole ideas, stole or borrowed ideas from all of these languages. And like, I can't, I knew, I thought I knew 
everything about Stepanov. And, <laughs> and then apparently there was a whole decade of his career that he spent in Scheme um, and even prototyped a ton of his ideas in C++ in, in Scheme. So yeah, let's yep. rewind to whether it's age six when you started programming or university uh, and, and then take us to share as much as you want up until the point that you were you know, doing all the Boost Pro and Boost Con stuff. All right. Uh, okay. It all started uh, at a, you're, you're not going to believe how this dates me, at a teletype with a paper tape punch and reader on the side of it. This was a terminal on a time-sharing system at my, my school, my middle and high school. The time-sharing system was a PDP-8, which was about a refrigerator-sized unit with a, with a magnetic tape drive on the front, no disks. It was so time-shared time basic to a bunch of teletypes uh, positioned throughout the, throughout the school. Actually, I think there was just... There was one downstairs in the lower school, and then there was, and then there was a cluster in the same room as the same room as the PDP-8. And it was an the operating system was essentially basic. On the front, there were there were actual switches for for entering binary bits, and if you wanted to program it from the front panel, you could flip a bunch of switches and then flip another switch, and and that would that would enter that binary number into the address space. So it was running basic and I was introduced to it by one of my classmates. I don't even remember who, and there were a bunch of basic computer games on there. In fact, they all came, if I remember right, from a book called 101 Basic Computer Games by Dave Hall, A-H-L, which was, you know, I, I wore that book out after I discovered programming. So somebody showed me how I could do a little bit of something with basic and I was, you know, immediately hooked. And from there, there was a 6502 breadboard prototyping system from Heathkit that the school had. And I, and I took that home and I, I figured out how to program an assembly language and, and made a tiny little, you know, car racing game on the LEDs and cause yeah, games. So that was the, that was the start. This is all in high school or middle school, middle school into high school. But yeah, but yeah, middle school, uh, middle school is junior high. And yeah, my dad was a physicist at Rutgers. And uh, when he saw how interested I was, he mentioned that they have uh, PDP 10 at his lab, where which was where they were doing bubble chamber research. So bubble chambers are, are essentially thing in which they track particle trails after uh, collisions. And maybe I want to check that out. And so I, I went there and it was, it was this giant room, you know, you walked inside the computer <laughs> to go inside the room. And, you know, there were a couple of, a uh, couple of hard disks, the size of washing machines um, and uh, lots of core memory, uh, you know, the little magnets, the little, uh, toroidal magnets on the wires and uh and they had they had a much faster paper tape punch and reader they had uh they had a line printer which made a lot of noise a line printer chugs out it it basically sets chooses on let's see there's like 128 columns each of which has a 
cylinder that has all of the possible characters on it. And, and so each line it prints, it rotates the, the cylinders to the right position, and then it slams them against the paper. So that was a print a whole line at once. That's called a line printer. Makes a lot of noise. And the, the PDP-10 manual that I got a hold of had uh, descriptions of several languages that they had obscure things like Tico and that, that I think was a text editing language, but also Algol, uh, which I, I tried to learn, uh, never actually got anywhere with that. A more sophisticated version of BASIC. That, that lab also had a, a Tektronics terminal in it on which you could play a, a game with, you know, where asteroids attack your spaceship and you're trying to shoot them down. And that was unlike anything, you know, a few years later, you would see that stuff in the arcade. But it was unlike anything I had ever seen at, at that point. Yeah. So, so that was pretty exciting, but it required, you know, a 45 minute commute with my dad into, into work uh, to, to do anything. And let's see, my, my mother was, uh, was a choreographer at Princeton teaching dance. And so I, I found out how I could get access to computers through her and, uh, I got, I got some account uh, on the Princeton University systems, which is where I discovered APL. Was that a shorter and, commute? Is that why? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sorry, I lived in Princeton. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Thank, thanks, Dad. But mom's mom's uh, university is closer. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. But although I think that I wasn't supposed to be using uh, a lot of that equipment, and nobody was paying much attention to where I was going, but, you know, I was just a teenager, no affiliation with the university. And at some point I was, I was so hungry to keep programming in APL that, that when I went to the engineering building and discovered it to be locked, I, you know, I I saw that I could just stick a twig in the door and, and essentially unlock it break my way in and go this, use the computers. This is amazing. This is, so, oh my goodness. It's APL is so addictive. You hear that? Dave Abrahams this is the creator of Swift. We're talking about here. Well, not creator. You've, um, one of the main key contributors uh, responsible for the standard library of Swift. Uh, it was in love with APL. All right. Wait, this is, uh, keep going. This is, this is amazing. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, APL appealed in part because I, you know, I would watch my dad do his work. He's a theoretical physicist. So when I watch him do his work, what he's writing down on the, on the paper, these all of these mysterious and magical symbols that had some kind of some kind of deep meaning, right, about the universe. And APL is a lot like that, right? It's full of full of little magical symbols. I guess I was still really interested in graphics, and and they had a uh, they had rooms full of these Tektronix terminals where you could use APL to make graphics. And APL having matrix multiplies, you know, matrix transformation built in and lots of array support for like long lists of points and things, it really lent itself well to this kind of, this kind of work. So I played around with that stuff. I was really interested in, in 3D and sort of figured out that I could, that by making an angular map of the world, I could actually create perspective in 2D. So these were the kinds of things I was playing with. Were you just all like, it sounds like you were just sneaking in and, and self-teaching. Like, did you have like an APL manual or like, how would you like, cause it's APL yeah. is not a simple thing to just 
oh, I've, I've seen into the meaning of this Unicode symbol and I now know what it means. Uh, oh, this is before Unicode, my man. Uh, oh. <laughs> yeah, there was no Unicode back then. It was just, you know, the yeah, you needed an APL terminal. It had APL symbols printed on the on the keys and and could display them. But yeah, I got my uh, the Princeton University bookstore was an amazing place. We would go to the U store. We called it all the time for for various things. I I was into like drafting and all kinds of all kinds of stuff I could I could get exposed to there and they had the APL manual there. So that's wow. how I got it. That is amazing. And is that, the, is that the last time that you programmed an APL? Have you ever used APL more recently? I have not. I remember, you know, maybe two of the symbols, maybe, <laughs> and what they did. But I, but I remember the principle. I mean, I, there is this, if I remember right, this is where I learned about lazy evaluation. I think, I think APL does a whole bunch of matrix stuff lazily. So you don't end up spending a lot of uh, cycles on elements you're not going to actually observe. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, this, this further adds to my confusion on how at some point people haven't taken APL and just made a GPU version. I guess technically there's been a little bit of research by an individual by name, named Aaron Shu who's made a GPU APL compiler. But like, I haven't actually heard that APL was used for graphic stuff like it makes complete sense because yeah all the matrix operations and whatnot but it seems like the the stepping stone into gpu land but i i guess by the yeah, time the, gpus showed up in the whatever 90s that apl had already started its decline so maybe maybe that has something to do with it um yeah you know i think the very thing that that attracted me so much is also part of the reason that people aren't pursuing it it's the stuff that's probably of lasting value in APL are the semantic bits and the syntax is, you know, impossible to remember and, and can be hard to read. And, you know, so that's why I don't remember it anymore, but, but yeah, the, the semantics of the operations were pretty interesting. You could encode all of those in something that was easier for people, you know, lay people to read and, and that might be an interesting system. Right. Yeah. All right. So where did you, you went, you were doing. Connor's only slightly distraught because Connor thinks APL is the most beautiful thing in the world. Well, no. So, well, I, it's I want gorgeous. to, I, I want to uh, continue on the, on the journey of, of Dave's history, but in the back of my head, there's a whole other conversation of, you know, it's like, it's hard to read, but like, you know, and this, this topic has come up in multiple different, you know, podcast conversations slash whatever, just chatting on zoom is, you know, readability, like what is really readability? Like readability is informed by one's experience. Someone who speaks Chinese and has read Chinese growing up, like Chinese is readable to them uh, because that's what they learn. But to a Westerner that does not speak or read Chinese, it seems overwhelming. You have to memorize 4,000 logograms and it's not combining just a set of, uh, you know, alphanumeric or no, I shouldn't say alphanumeric, just alphabetical characters. And, and so you have to find a way to like objectively remove experience. And then how do you answer the question of what truly is more expressive or more readable than, than one thing, just because 99% of all programming languages, you sort of use English or, you know, keywords and whatnot. Does that truly make APL less readable or is it just more unfamiliar than everything that people are used to? And I don't even have the answer to that question. I just uh, think it's a very interesting question. Yeah. I'm not saying that, that I'm not even sure that I said it's not readable. 
I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it makes a great communication medium for a large audience because it is a challenge to learn and not many people have learned it. But, you know, you also, when the imperatives get strong enough, people will learn all kinds of things. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, for example, Chinese, you know, very objectively computationally difficult, but if it's what, you know, you're brought up in and what you need to survive, then of course you will learn it. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the, the main roles of, of programming in the modern age is as it's about communicating to people. And, you know, I think communicating stuff to the, to the computer is, is fine, but syntactic sugar, sugar actually counts. Right. No, no. Right? Yeah. Well, there's a whole, uh, there's a whole, I went on CPP chat one time and the title of the episode was, I really like sugar because at some point, you know, I'd heard, oh, lambdas are just sugar, you know, structure bindings are just sugar, but I never really understood that because it's sort of like saying that, like that, that's a bad thing, but like one, most people really enjoy sugar. And two, I think it's, it's sort of, it misses the point, like something that is more expressive or easier to digest. Like lambdas have completely changed the way that people can understand and read generic algorithms because you don't have to, oh, there's a function object that's been defined somewhere else. Like you can just, it's, it's there. You see the customization and it, it is yeah. then more readable. It's, it's yes, sure. It is just sugar for a function object, but yeah, yeah I, I completely agree that something that is syntactically more expressible than a, an equivalent thing that sure, it's just sugar. It, it changes it, the program, not semantically, but definitely from a readability perspective. Yeah, sure. I mean, or, or, you know, if you, all you care about is, is the semantics, we could all program in assembly language and be just as happy, <laughs> right? But we don't. So it's an official statement from Dave Abrams. <laughs> we should have sure. to uh, program an assembly if we only care about semantics. So. Yeah. If we don't care about syntax sugar, I mean, that's like all programming languages are syntax sugar, right? right. And at some level, and if, if there was a huge community of people that already understood how to read APL, I think the, the imperatives would be very different and maybe more research into, into using APL on things would, would happen. And some people argue, sometimes it's me, that there is like an order or two orders of magnitude in your ability to think and solve problems due to having like what, you know, Iverson originally wasn't called APL. It was called Iverson notation and his, his Turing award paper, which listeners of this, the listener of this podcast is a notation as a tool of thought. It, he never really wanted it to be a programming language. It was a, huh. a language, a notation for expressing algorithms. Yep. And uh, at some point someone realized they were just like, hey, we could probably implement the IBM 360 in this. And they were like, oh, okay, let's, uh, let's give it a spin. And and yeah, I think it's worth learning just for the ability to be able to solve a problem differently. But yeah, that's a, we'll, we'll put yes. a pin in this because we need, or, or sorry, go ahead. And then we'll get back to what happened after APL. Was it small talk was the next chapter, but uh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Well, okay. I want to endorse your position. I mean, I, I think APL is totally worth learning. It's, it's great to have, uh, you know, new perspectives on programming. I think the operator composition that they do in APL is really, really interesting and and expressive. And and I also want to say I was I was in C deeply for such a long time. And and the just doing Swift changed my perspective on programming language design and the trade-offs and everything so much that uh, 
that I, I think it's, it's really super valuable to immerse yourself in, in something truly different than what you're used to. So if you haven't tried APL, it's worth a shot. Yeah. There's a, I'm not even sure the quote pertains to programming languages, but I saw a quote once that was, you don't really understand fully a language until you actually know two. There's another tweet and article from Ben Dean who talks about sort of the uh, seven sort of paradigms that you should, you know, if you're going to go and learn a new language and you know C++, like don't go learn Java, like go learn Prolog or APL or, yep. or Lisp or something that's in a completely different paradigm because Java, you'll learn a couple things, but for the most part, it's it's got a lot of the core that's the same. But if you go learn, you know, Prolog or Smalltalk or something, it's, it's going to bend the way that you think about the programming world. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So let's APL chapter, APL chapter has ended at Princeton. Uh, and then, and then, and then what happened next? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so I went off to college and college. Well, I, I was, I was interested in a lot of different things. And, and uh, I remember, I remember asking uh, all of the, all of the people that came around to hype their, their schools, you know, whether that kind of, you know, studying lots of different areas was going to be supported. And I remember the, uh, when I asked the Carnegie Mellon person about this, they, they said, well, we don't encourage dilettantism. And, uh, so that, that school was crossed off my list, but the, <laughs> but the, the woman who came to talk about Penn was really excited when I asked this. And, and so, you know, and it, when I got in and visited the campus, it just felt it felt like home. So, so I, that's where I ended up going and I wasn't really sure what I wanted to focus on, but I enrolled in computer science to, to start with. And they had, they were, they were teaching in Pascal. And so I learned Pascal for, for school. And it was a UNIVAC 1170, I believe was the computer that everyone was using. So another big mainframe with lots of terminals and, yeah, let's see. Other programming languages during that time, I guess I was exposed to Lisp. There was actually a Lisp machine there, which was a pretty interesting thing. And I think this is probably also around the time when I picked up Emacs, which has a whole backend in Lisp and has stuck with my muscle memory ever since. So that's still how I, how I do a lot of things on a computer. Emacs. All right. So we don't need to ask the, that question or start any. Uh... Yeah. Emacs or Vim. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's just, uh, you know, what already works for me. So right, yeah, that's what I do after, after college, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, but got a, got a, accepted to Carnegie Mellon's graduate program in computer science, spent a year there where I found myself spending at least as much time working on music and, and playing music as I did on computer science, decided I wanted to go to Berkeley College of Music, which is Berkeley with the two E's in Boston. Went to Boston, spent a semester at Berkeley, realized I was really done with school. <laughs> um, and at that point I needed to get a job. And so I got my first real uh, professional job, which was doing computer music software for a company called Mark of the Unicorn, which they had a program called Composer and they wanted to they wanted to improve it. I guess the person that had been working on it had left. 
maybe maybe that was Robin. She the I think she left to go to Adobe, strangely enough. And you know, I I was I looked at it and I thought, you know, this seems a little bit clunky. Maybe I can do better. They they had a mentor for me there who had who had built a really successful product. And so they said, okay, go and do that with this, you know, this guy, because I had never, I'd never done any real professional programming before. And of course this guy quit once he met me. No, <laughs> he, he quit <laughs> shortly thereafter. So I was basically, I was basically, you know, on my own learning how to, to write software, learning how to write a Mac application um, with the responsibility of writing this entire application uh, on my shoulders. What language is this in at the time? Uh, what language was I? I think to start with, I only had C. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I only had C. And at some point in my first year, I discovered I was reading Byte magazine, and there was this this thing you could download that was essentially a little small talk. And so small talk does come into the picture. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I, I, it wasn't actually small talk. It was a tiny object oriented language. Okay. Um, you know, basically dynamic dispatch, you know, was the, was the key thing. So you had methods and you had dynamic dispatch and something, something clicked with me where I thought, oh, this is, this is how user interfaces should be built. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so I built an object-oriented programming system on top of C using horrible macros and, and conventions and whatnot. And so that was, the, that was the back end of my product, which was eventually called Composer's Mosaic. So that was that job. I went on from that to do all kinds of other interesting things in computer music uh, in that job and spent 11 years there which I have to say, I, I've said this before, it was a hugely, uh, it was a huge growth experience for me to spend that much time with my own code and mm-hmm. having, to, having to live with my own mistakes because you really learn what is going to work in the long term and what isn't. Um, and one of the things I noticed, especially once, you know, the internet, started to heat up and, and everything was a lot of people were taking jobs and working there for a year and handing their code off to somebody else and, and leaving. And I, I thought those people are missing out. Is there, well, advice or like, what, what is the, what are some of the key things that you took away that you think people are missing out from not spending that amount of time uh, or that is only sort of lessons you can learn, or maybe they're not things that you can be captured in a podcast bite and it's, it's stuff you have to actually just experience. Uh, well, you know, I think, I think a lot of it could have been, I, a lot of pain I could have not gone through if I'd had somebody who to mentor me at that time who knew more of these things. But I think, you know, it comes back to, in some ways, I think there's nothing new under the sun to, to learn about programming. Programming is about, you know, creating a solid foundation in which you can locally reason about the behavior of things, right? Getting getting it right is about that. And, you know, just how, how much to not let yourself get away with in terms of, in terms of, you know, oh, it seems to work mm. and, you know, what kinds of reinforcements to build in. Uh, I went through a, a long phase around this time when I would 
explicitly write out asserts and and uh, about all my preconditions and and insert invariants all over the place, like I was implementing contract programming in my in my software, and I learned a lot from that. Um, it got to the point, you know. Eventually, if you do that enough, you get to the point where you you can see logically that your software is correct, and you don't need these kinds of reinforcements. But but that was a that was a huge learning experience for me. Another interesting thing was just about some of the trade-offs that I I made in my initial designs. My initial design for for this notation software was designed around conserving every byte because memory was really constrained at that time. You know, you get a 128K Mac on your desktop. This is what people were were doing this work with. And uh, and so I developed this really compact encoding for, for the notation. But then what I discovered in the long run was, and actually to be able to manipulate this, this notation stuff, I needed to build a much more expensive dynamic data structure on top of it with, you know, just essentially a decompressed version of it. And the, but it was very hard ever to get rid of this, this underlying encoding <laughs> that I had. So just being able to think about, think about, you know, what it's going to cost you to optimize over here. That was one of the, one of the big lessons. So you, you spend 11 years, you said, uh, working on that and then mm-hmm. what, caught, what, caught, what, or slash what's the kind of time period and what caused you to, to, you were looking for your next challenge or. Yeah. Well, so it was toward the end of my, my stay there that, well, this is like C plus plus is sort of starting to come into its own. Mm-hmm. So the the language we're using next after C at Mark of the Unicorn was something called Think C, which which was essentially C with with a kind of dynamic uh, dispatch object system on top of it, kind of Objective C like, and uh, and then C plus plus comes along, and during this time, so I I my friend next door Mark Waxler showed me the the interview with Alex Stepanov and Dr. Dobbs. Uh, and I was like, oh, this STL thing, I've got to get this. Because you don't, I don't think people understand, but at that time there were no libraries. There were really no libraries. Like if you wanted to do anything, you had to write it yourself. Okay, there was QSort, right? There was C's <laughs> QSort. There were no... There were no frameworks for for user interfaces. There were there were basically so there was nothing. So so we were developing everything from scratch. And and you know I wrote binary search wrong about fifty times. Okay. Mm. Uh, did like did uh, to kept, skip ahead? Did Sean give you that question upon hiring you at Adobe uh, to write a binary get, search? Yeah, that's the one that they asked a modified binary search. Or did you he get said he was going to exempt me from it? Oh, okay. So could have been a different outcome if he'd asked you to write it. Or, yeah, that's true. That's do you true, think you would have gotten it right uh, that time? Uh, probably at, at this point. Uh, I, 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 yeah, I think, I think if I didn't rush through it, I think I wouldn't have rushed through it actually, because, because I still remember getting it wrong so many times. Yeah. <laughs> right. 
Um, but yeah, now I, I believe I know how to think about binary search. So when I saw this, uh, when I saw this article on the STL, and then I discovered that the, the thing actually had documented requirements and guarantees, unlike any of the code that I had written, because I'm, you know, I'm writing, I'm writing music software. I don't, I'm, it's not my, it's not when I'm not being paid to, to write a binary search. I'm not being paid to be good at, at sort. I'm being paid to be good, to be a, actually, you know, it's a tiny niche, but I was a world-class expert in music software. Okay. Um, and I think this is, I think this is, is typical and, and correct that, you know, people get paid to become domain experts and, and do something they're really good at and apply that expertise. And you can't be an expert in everything. And so this is one of the reasons, you know, I think I was so enamored when Boost came along that libraries are so important. In any case, I find this STL and it's got documented requirements and guarantees and complexity. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I can actually think about when I put these two pieces together, what the overall cost is going to be. Is it going to be efficient? You know, this was, this was amazing. This is not what anybody did. And sadly, I would say it's still not what anybody does. Pretty much, well, you know, maybe I think it got into the C++ culture a bit. So that's good. But I think if you look in industry, I think in general, people are not careful about documenting requirements, guarantees, and especially complexity. But this made, this made a, a, a huge difference for me. But I, I looked at this and we were still, we were still working on systems without virtual memory. And so running out of memory was a real thing. And what was C++'s answer to running out of memory it was to throw an exception. And at the time when I got the STL, the, the language that came with it said, you know, the, the documentation said, if an exception's thrown inside of any of this, if you throw an exception while sorting, whatever, all bets are off. Your program's going to crash. <laughs> Maybe if you're lucky, <laughs> right? If you're unlucky, it launches the missiles. <laughs> so being in this environment where we had to deal with out of memory, I already had some idea of how to handle errors. And I looked at this and I thought, well, this is just not that hard. Just do what, what I always do for handling errors. Well, it turned out to be a, a more sophisticated thing than that. But it was basically, I thought we could solve this problem. So I actually wrote a message to Alex found Alex's address and, and said, you know, I'm thinking I could fix this problem. And, uh, and he said, he, he wrote back and said, I, I think that's great. Uh, but you should be aware that they're like already two years behind in finalizing the standard. It was supposed to be done in 96 or 95 or something like that. And, um, and, you know, you're going to have a hard sell to make any changes at this point. And, uh, but, but he said, here, let me put you in touch with, I think it was Greg Colvin that he put me in touch with, possibly. He either put me in touch with him or Andy Koenig. And at some point I got onto the, what they called the reflectors. Is, is the committee still using reflectors? <laughs> we, we still call them that. And it's probably <laughs> right. still hosted in the same place. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Mailman. 
Yep. All right, cool. Um, <laughs> so I got on the reflectors and started uh, started talking about this on the library working group. And, and one of the things, so I, I definitely heard from a lot of people, you know, we don't have time to deal with this. We're already behind. I also heard this is well known to be an impossible problem to solve. I'm paraphrasing. I don't know whether they actually said impossible, but it was, there was a common wisdom that exception safety was not something that we could handle. And a lot of it came from this, uh, from this article, the way people read this article by Tom Cargill, which, which was a classic, uh, at that point about why especially generics and exception safety was a difficult problem. And while Cargill didn't say it was impossible to solve, um, he pointed out a lot of problems and a lot of, uh, a lot of people read this to, to be a demonstration that it just, you know, wasn't tractable. So there was, this is, you know, actually, Getting exception safety into the standard is how I developed my appreciation for the consensus process, I think, in large part. At some point, so I made my arguments on, on the reflector. At some point, Andy Koenig said, said, well, that's all very well and good, but you're not going to get anything accomplished unless you show up at a meeting. I was like, wow. Well, f- fortunately, the next meeting was... I was in Massachusetts. It was just in New Hampshire and I got the time off work to go there. And that was, that was a really amazing experience. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know that the culture has really, the stories I've heard of have not been good uh, recently about, about the culture and committee meetings. But at that time, one of the things I was most impressed with was how a group of such smart people with such divergent viewpoints could treat each other with such respect. And especially that I got a lot of respect, even for the, the things I had argued. And I tried to, you know, I, I realized this was not my domain. So I was not trying to like tread in heavy, but it was, it was a really different feeling than my professional experience. I felt, I felt hugely validated by this. And so that contrast was the beginning of the end of my work at Mark of the Unicorn, because, you know, I really saw that I wanted more of, of what we were doing in the committee. At this point, we had to stop recording due to time constraints, but we will definitely have Dave Abrahams back on to tell the rest of his story. Until then, enjoy this three minutes of bonus content from behind the scenes. Well, I'm happy to come back. I hope I hope it was all actually interesting and I wasn't just droning on taking up time. Oh my oh, goodness. No. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Holy smokes, the internet. I'm just I'm gonna be putting together a team of like people that, you know, we're putting a team together and the person's gonna say, No, I'm not interested in joining, but they're still gonna unofficially be on that team of uh people that used to do APL. Um <laughs> <laughs> and you were doing it in high school, like Oh man, that was uh. He was you. He was pr- breaking into mainframes to do it in high school. That is such a you. Yeah, you were you were sneaking around Princeton, um, yeah. and uh, I guess not sneaking around, just sneaking into and and also yeah, breaking uh breaking into 
That's oh man, that's definitely going to be the intro to whatever part one or part two of where it was just I was so hungry for APL that I <laughs> I broke into the that is just oh my goodness oh my goodness it, it wasn't it, it wasn't much to break I mean you could see like that this was old style security right uh, there's a gap between the doors and you could see the little hook <laughs> it's just like oh all I have to do is wiggle that thing. I might consider uh, in, in, cutting in. Uh, unfortunately, at this point, uh, Dave's mic cut out, but uh, he had this real elaborate, you know, he had to uh, <laughs> at one point break the window. You know, this is uh, <laughs> his mom got in trouble from the university for all the damage from property. Um, so that's where APL will take you if you're not careful. Well, this, um, this almost, I almost did get, I, I did get, uh, yeah. At one point, somebody got in trouble because, because I w was not not broken into the engineering building, but I was using a terminal I wasn't supposed to use. In fact, I think I was using an account I wasn't supposed to use because some graduate student had me, he, he wanted to build some statistical charts. So he had me program that and he let me use this, this account that I was supposed to stop using. As a high school student, you were doing work for some of the grad students at Princeton? I guess so. I mean, it was, he didn't pay me or anything. So, you know, who knows if, who knows if this was even like, you know, he was, he was legal or not to do that. And I don't even know if, if he was supposed to do that work or whatever. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed and have a great day.